What's up, Salt Company? My name is Jordan Adams, and I am in Minnesota right now. Shout out to you guys. But I actually went to school at Iowa State, and so I'm back home uh, in Ames right now where we're filming this. And I, I wish I could see you guys in person, some of you that were there when I was here, give you a shout out, get a few woos. I'm a big woo guy when I got a live audience, so this camera thing is not ideal, but it's, it's still awesome to be back and be back uh, in this church that meant so much to me in my life. So. Uh, I was a student at Iowa State and then on staff um, with Salt Company here for a couple years. And then my wife and I moved up to Minnesota to help plant the church up there. But guys, when I came into Salt Company, I, it, it wasn't a thing yet, all right? Like I, I rolled in and now there's a, there's a network, like people all over the country, shout out to you in Penn State and Florida, all over the place. Most of us are in the Midwest, but this thing's going national. But it, it wasn't a thing back then. I, I rolled into Salt Company and it was in just this sketchy gym in, in Ames. And, uh, but my buddies and I used to dream about what God would do. And we started talking about what if there was more churches like this or, or what if there was more Salt Companies or we could lead one of these things someday. And I think God has done more um, than we ever could have imagined he would do in our life in just a few years. And so this is so cool to get to teach at a network-wide salt company. This is like a dream come true for me, guys. So it's, it's awesome to be with you. And, and some of you know me, a lot of you don't. Here's what I'm known for is what's called a Jordan story. Now, now here's what a Jordan story is, all right? Is, is where you're walking through life and then you just get trucked by life and things escalate quickly. And, and, and for me, it just gets out of control faster than it does for most people. Now, most people would hide these things that happen to them because they usually involve physical, psychological, or emotional pain. Um, but I just embrace them and tell them publicly. So for example, I, I can't go on my big ones like when I almost hit a bus on rollerblades, that type of thing, but I can give you a little sample of a Jordan story. So have you ever had the falling dream? where you're, you're dreaming and then you feel like you're falling out of bed, you wake up like completely freaked out, don't know what's going on and you eventually figure out that you're good. Well, my subconscious took it up a notch and uh, I actually just jumped out of the top bunk of a bunk bed while I was sleeping. And I woke up in midair uh, with just enough time to go, well, this sucks. And then I uh, belly flopped onto a wooden chair, like a dining room chair and face plant on the ground. And then I was just laying on the ground Dazed and confused, still waking up, hurting everywhere, trying to figure out what just happened to me. Um, so that is going to happen in your life. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna connect this here, but, but here's the reality is you will be walking through life and everything will be normal and you'll be at peace. And then you will get absolutely blindsided by life in suffering. And, and here's the reality is, is we're all from different places with different backgrounds. We go to different schools, but, but here's the universal for all of us is that if you live long enough, you will suffer. And, and some of you might be thinking, wow, that took a, that took a turn, that took a shift. Yeah, um, here's why is because this summer we're talking about the wisdom literature, um, which I don't have time to get into what that is, but there's a great Bible project video on it. You can go to YouTube and just punch in Bible project wisdom lit and learn more about it. But we're talking specifically about the book of Job today. And the book of Job is a story about a guy who lived thousands of years ago named Job and how he got absolutely blindsided by life. And, and here's the reality is not if, but when that happens to you, 
you'll have that experience multiple times in your life where it's like you're laying on the ground dazed and confused trying to figure out what just happened to your life and you won't know how to pick up the pieces of it. And some of you have even experienced that in COVID. And, and this is what I want you to know is in that moment, it will be too late to respond well in suffering. You, you won't be able to analyze your response and, and figure out how to respond well because you'll just be trying to process what just happened to your life. And so the reality is, is when you suffer, what already was in you comes out of you. And so the, the big question of the book of Job today that I wanna talk about is if God is good and he's just, then why is there suffering in his world? But on top of that, I actually wanna go more specific in your life. And I want you to ask yourself the question, are you ready to suffer? Not if, but when you suffer, Will you make it? Will you hold on to your faith? And what does it look like to become a person who can hold on to their faith even when everything goes wrong in life? And so let's get into the book of Job. Uh, I'd love it if you'd flip there with me. If you have a Bible, or you can download a, a Bible app on your phone. The book of Job is towards the middle of the Bible near the book of Psalms. It's a pretty, a pretty big book. It starts out with an introduction to just the character of Job. Um, and, and here's all you really need to know about him is that he was really rich and really righteous. And not righteous in the bad way, not like self-righteous, annoying Christian person, but actually righteous, genuinely kind to everyone in his life. A man who believed God and wanted to obey him and follow him. And he had a ton of stuff. And so that's the, the physical realm that we get with Job. But then the Bible actually quickly kind of peels back that physical curtain and gives us a glimpse into the, to the supernatural heavenly realm, which is every bit as real of a place as the physical place is. It's just something that we can't see, but there's real personal beings there who are interacting in a way that affects our physical world. And so we're gonna get a look into the heavenly. So look there with me, Job. Chapter one, starting in verse six. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on earth? God is bragging on one of his followers. He's proud of Job. That's such a, a cool thing. Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? So Satan is about to accuse Job. He's about to do the thing that his name implies that he does is accuse God's people. Verse 10, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hands. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So, so you can take away all of his stuff. You just can't kill him. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Guys, so this is, this is a wild scene. Okay, what we have here is two eternal enemies, God and Satan, who are having this conversation together. And Satan comes into the throne room of God and is asking him for permission to do things in the world. Okay, that would be like if Nazi Germany had to go to the allies to ask permission to bomb London in World War II. This is just a 
utterly wild scene. And Satan hates God, but he has to submit to God's authority. And we're seeing a little bit of that play out. But here's what Satan is trying to do. He's trying to bait God. He's trying to trick him into allowing him to hurt God's servant Job. And it's super transparent in the text. Like you see it coming from a mile away as the reader. And so you think there's no way God's gonna fall for this. He knows better than to let Satan kind of bait him into it. But Satan's sitting there going, I double dog dare you to do it. You won't do it. And here's what God does. As he says, okay, Satan, you can ruin his life. You can take everything that he has. The only thing you can't do is kill him. What? Like, why would God take that bait? And so from the beginning of the book, uh, the, this question forms that I, that I mentioned that will be fleshed out throughout the, throughout the rest of the book, which is why does God allow suffering in his good world? If he's good and he's just, why does he allow suffering? And so we're asking again those two questions. The first question is how can you suffer well when suffering inevitably encounters you? In order to answer that, we're gonna look at the character of Job. But then the bigger question after we get through that is why is suffering there in the first place? Why does it even exist in God's world? And in order to investigate that, we're gonna look at the character of God. Is he actually just, is he actually good like he claims to be? Which is a question that, I think all of us will ask at some point in our lives and is one of the oldest and biggest objections to Christianity. It's something we've got to wrestle with. All right, so, so the first question, how do we suffer well when it comes our way? We've got to look at Job's character. So God gives Satan the green light and then Satan leaves to go cause suffering in Job's life. And remember, Job is really rich. So the dude's got like 10,000 animals, all right? And now, I don't know what the con conversion rate of like camels to dollars is, but if you have 10,000 of anything, you're doing pretty well. All right, so the dude's got 10,000 animals and, and Satan shows up in his life and it, in, in the text talks about it, like there's just suffering coming from all directions, right? There's, there's tribes coming in from the East and attacking um, his, his stuff and his servants and his family from the West. There's, there's fire coming down from heaven, which was lightning. There's a tornado that, that hits the house that, his family is in and Job gets hit with all of these things at once. Just imagine if you lost everything that was important to you in the world all at the same time. That's what Job is experiencing. And remember the accusation of Satan. Satan was saying, God, Job doesn't actually love you for you. He just loves you for your stuff. And so if you take his stuff away, he will curse you. And so the text slows down and it focuses in and we see how Job response to this thing. Verse 20, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. So he's in deep mourning. Feeling pain deeply is not an anti-Christian thing. Job demonstrates outwardly the amount of pain this, that he's experiencing. And I think in this moment, those heavenly beings that we got introduced to at the beginning of the story are holding their breath because Satan and God have a wager and they're wondering if Job is going to curse God and Satan is gonna be proved right. But listen to what Job actually does. So Job tears his robe, shaves his head, falls on the ground and worships. And then verse 21, this is what he says. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
Is that how you respond if that happens to you? Like an absolutely unbelievable response. Because here's what suffering does is it squeezes you so that whatever was in you comes out. Like you squeeze an orange, orange juice comes out. God squeezed Job and worship came out. Let me ask you, what comes out of you when you get squeezed? What's come out of you in COVID if this has been a tough stretch for you as your life had to change? And and maybe it's really difficult suffering that some of you guys have walked through what came out of you, or maybe it's just your life not going according to plan. Maybe it's little things like a test didn't go as you wanted to or a relationship. And how do you respond in that moment? What comes out when God squeezes you? Because here's, I think what comes out of me a lot is anxiety, fear, sometimes anger. I get angry at my life, which is realistically getting angry at God because he's the one that rules my life. And here's what's going on in my heart in that moment is I'm vying for control of my own world. So so I'm looking at my life and I'm saying, these are the circumstances in my life that if, if things would just go according to plan in this way, then I would be happy, then my life would be good. And this is how my life should go. And I'm not happy with the way that my life is going. And so I vie for control and I try and manipulate my circumstances to create what I want in my life. And when I'm not powerful enough to do that, when it doesn't go according to plan, then I get anxious, afraid, and frustrated as if I should be the one ruling my life. But what did Job know that we didn't that allowed him to respond like this? He understood that everything he had in his life was a gift from God. And not only was it a gift, but he didn't deserve it. Look back at what he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Instead of cursing God because his stuff got taken from him, he blesses God because he understands that he didn't deserve anything that God gave him. And so when God gave him good gifts and when God took those gifts away, Job was able to see both of those situations as a gift from a good God. So there's only two types of people on roller coasters, right? So you're on a roller coaster and there's the first type that just throws their hands up in the air and enjoys the ride. They just love roller coasters. They just embrace it, hands up, let's go, let's have some fun. Then there's the second type who freaks out the entire time, right? Like grabbing that safety bar for dear life. Um, Shout out to Caleb Thompson in Kansas. Uh, You guys can feel free to ask him which type he is. You're welcome, Caleb. Um, But here's the deal. You can can sit on a roller coaster and you can grab that bar, white knuckle that thing as, as long as you go. You can lean into the curves and pretend like that's gonna change the direction of the roller coaster. But here's the reality. Once that thing starts, there's no stopping it. Things are gonna go exactly how they're gonna go. You're gonna end up where you ended up. And realistically, that bar is gonna keep you safe. And so you can try to manipulate those circumstances as much as you want. You can try to to get yourself back in control to feel safe, but all that's gonna produce is stress and frustration, right? Like you're gonna hate your life the entire time you're on that roller coaster, or you could just throw your hands up in the air and and enjoy the ride. This is what I'm saying. Your life, you're not in control of it. 
God's gonna do whatever he wants with your life. Now, don't do anything weird with that. I'm not saying that your decisions don't matter or anything like that. I'm just saying you are not ultimately in control of your life. That roller coaster is going wherever God wants it to go, whenever he wants it to go there, and you can't stop it. And so you can respond to that by pretending like you can gain some semblance of control and try and convince yourself like you somehow can, can turn that thing the way you want it to go, or you can just throw your hands up and enjoy the ride. And that second option is what contentment looks like. I think the wisdom literature talks a lot about how to live a good life. And I think one of the primary answers is, is that you embrace the fact that you're out of control and you trust God with that control that you don't have. Paul talks about it in Philippians 4 that he's learned to be content in any circumstance. Why? Because he sees it as a gift and he trusts the God behind the circumstances. So that's how you become the type of person who can continue to hold on to God even when you suffer is when you understand that your life is a gift, whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen and that you can trust him in the process. So that's the first question. But then the second question is about the character of God. Why is God doing this? And Job at first has this incredible faith that we see. And on the whole, he's a man of faith. But as you get further into the book, so I'm focusing in on chapters one and two, but also kind of zooming out to the, to the bigger narrative of the book. As you get further into the book of Job, what you'll see is Job start to waver a little bit. And he never curses God. He never does what Satan said he would do, but he does start to question God. And, and, and this is why, is because when you're trying to vie for control, inevitably that will produce questioning God about how he's running his universe. And this is the skeptical position. So Job has some friends that come to try and help him through suffering that actually just make the matters worse. And they're moralists. So they're essentially saying, Job, the reason why you're suffering is because you're guilty. You've sinned against God. And it's the super sort of overly simplistic answer. You've sinned against God. And so if you just stop sinning, then God will bless you. But that's not how God works. It's not a transactional relationship with God. And so the friends are wrong, but then Job gets angry with his friends and he responds with skepticism. And he's saying, how could God be good if he allows this into my life? I don't deserve this suffering. And watch your life because this will happen to you you will start to question what's going on in your life. And they might start with innocent questions about God, but eventually you'll start interrogating him as if he owes you an answer. And that's actually what Job ends up doing. It is that throughout the book, he's, he's going, God, you've been interrogating me about my character in my life and my friends are interrogating me. I wanna interrogate you. I've got some questions to ask you, God, about why you're doing this. So why don't you, it's almost like a trial scene. Why don't you sit up on the stand, God, and I'm gonna ask you some questions. He begins to interrogate God, but here's the problem with that, is there's a fundamental assumption that all of us will be tempted to fall into behind that interrogation of God, that questioning him on his goodness. And here's the assumption is that human beings have enough knowledge of how the universe works to give God a critique of how he's running his universe. So, so in order to give a valid critique of something, you have to be an expert in that field or have enough knowledge to give that critique, or at least you had to before Twitter existed. You don't have to now, but in general, like you, you need to be an expert. So, so for example, if, if there's a courtroom scene and there's arguing about what actually happened and, and the crime involved a gun, 
you bring in a ballistics expert and you ask that expert their opinion. What you don't do is grab some junior high kid off the street and say, hey, what do you think about all this? The kid's gonna be like, I don't know. Like, can I go ride my bike now? The kid doesn't know and doesn't care. You gotta bring in an expert. So the question is, is do you have enough knowledge? Are you enough of an expert to interrogate God on how his universe works? So I was listening to a, a podcast the other day because podcasts are amazing. Guys, they're cool now. Get on the podcast train, all right? So I was listening to this podcast and it was about a deep sea octopus, which I know sounds just super invigorating, but guys, it was amazing. Okay, so there's this deep sea octopus that laid her eggs and it was like, she had like 160 babies, all right? And she's sitting on this rock, kind of protecting those eggs, sitting on top of them, protecting them from these crabs that were trying to attack or whatever. And these scientists um, decided that they would try and figure out how long this, incubation period would last so that they would observe this octopus. So they came back in six months and she was still sitting there. And after a couple check-ins with her, they had to go from measuring it in months to measuring it in years. So they got to year three and she was still sitting on the eggs and like epically fighting off crabs that were trying to get to her young. And here's, if, if you're not blown away by that, which you should be, but if you're not blown away by that, here's what else you need to know. She literally never moved from the rock. So she did not eat this entire time. And she sat on those eggs protecting them for five years, almost five years without eating. Okay, question, do you know how the brain of that octopus works? Because God does. In fact, he designed all of those little babies intricately within their shells. He designed their brains and how they would function. God knows how many gallons of water are in the deep sea. As you sleep, he decides whether you take your next breath or not. And he turns every blade of grass in his creation to his pleasure. Can you, can I, can we critique a God like that? And that's essentially the answer that God gives Job. So I'm not gonna get into that. Come back next week for that answer. Job says, God, I want you to come down. I've got some questions for you. And God says, all right, I'm gonna come down, but you're not gonna ask me the questions. I'll ask you the questions. And God spends a couple chapters at the end of the book of Job just flexing on Job. And he's totally justified in doing it. And it's amazing. All right, come back next week for that. But here's what's so interesting about God's answer. So the, the entire book has been building up to this moment, right? The entire book has been about this question. God, why would you allow someone to suffer like this? How are you running your world? And it's been building up through chapter on top of chapter on top of chapter. And then God finally gets to this point where we think we're finally going to get the answer. And Job finally thinks he's gonna get an answer from God, but God never answers the question about suffering. Why? Because what Job didn't need was a nice little answer to his questions. He needed God to be with him. He didn't need an answer to his questions. He needed the God who would be with him in suffering. And here's what Job didn't get is answers to his questions. But what he did get is a revelation of the character of God. And that was enough for him. God is the answer in our pain. Your instincts will be to try and solve your problems, but what you need is a God who will walk with you in the pain. But your question might be, how can you trust a God like that? 
How can you trust a God who would allow suffering like that in your life? Well, here's the answer, is that he's not the God who stayed distant and big and just enjoyed his power, but he's the God who came to get you. He left the place where there was absolutely no suffering. He left heaven to pursue you on earth so that you could have a relationship with him. And what was his mission as he came to earth to suffer? God himself in the world that he designed, designed a world where God would have to suffer to save humanity. Jesus was the ultimate righteous sufferer. Job was close to being righteous, but Jesus never sinned. And so he never deserved, he was blameless. He never deserved any type of suffering. But instead of just holding that for himself and holding it against you, he wanted to give you his blamelessness. And so he entered into our suffering to be able to relate to us. And then he ultimately suffered on the cross. He experienced the ultimate injustice that's ever happened in the universe, the son of God being killed by sinful people so that you wouldn't have to experience the justice of God for what you've done wrong, but you could receive grace. All of the justice of God was poured out on Jesus. Do you remember at the beginning when I said that Satan it was baiting God into allowing him to hurt Job? You know what's true? Satan wasn't baiting God. God was baiting Satan. Here's what I mean is what we get a look at is God is the one that brings up the conversation about, about Job. God is the one that puts limits on Satan. God is the one that designs the whole thing. Why? Because he wanted to bring about Job's redemption through suffering. In other words, he wanted to kill suffering through suffering. He wanted to use Satan to defeat Satan. He wanted to use evil against evil. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate picture of that, that on that day, Satan thought that he had won. And maybe he was even thinking back to the story of Job when he had lost that battle, but he thought, now finally human beings have cursed God and I've won. And for three days, heaven held its breath. Because I wanna get back together with you so much. And one of the things I wanna get back to is college football. I wanna go to a college football game and just like celebrate with a stadium full of people. And you know that moment where there's a pass in the air and an entire stadium full of thousands of people collectively holds its breath, but then a receiver comes down with it in the end zone and, and there's this roar and people go absolutely insane. For three days while Jesus was in the grave, heaven held its breath. Can you imagine what that roar was like when Jesus got out of the grave? And because he got out of the grave, you can get out of the grave. And because he got out of the grave, your suffering is limited. Yes, there's suffering in this world, but you have a hope of eternity with him where you'll never suffer again because Jesus killed death. That's the reason why I care so much about this. I mean, I obviously, I've given my life to this gospel message, but more in particular, the one about suffering is because it's so much my story. So I grew up just a, a super moral kid. And um, the way that I came to actually know Jesus was when I was 16, the night that my dad passed away. So my dad had cancer, he passed away. That's the night that I came to know him. 
And I had spent my entire life trying to be sufficient in myself. Spent my entire life trying to answer my own questions and I came up against something in that moment that I didn't know how to answer and I was completely afraid and I didn't have anything. And in his suffering, I had been investigating other religions, thinking about atheism, thinking about agnosticism because I was just mad at God about this suffering. But here's what happened on that night is through suffering, God revealed himself to me. I got squeezed and what came out was desperation and he turned that desperation into faith because I didn't have any answers that were sufficient for me in the moment. The only thing that mattered for me and that could answer my pain was God himself with me. And I didn't have a dad anymore and so I needed a new dad and he was the one that was sufficient for me. So as the band kind of starts to come back on me, just give you guys a final thought. What you need the most is God himself in your life. So here's what I found about Jesus is that Jesus was more moral than my moralism. He was more hopeful than my atheism. He was more rational than my skepticism. But more importantly than any of that, he was enough. I had him and those ideas before were just ideas and they crumbled in my life when I suffered. But once I got him, he was enough. He was with me in my suffering. Guys, and this is what Jesus has told me is that all I have to do to get to spend eternity with him and enjoy his new creation with him is keep trusting him through a little bit of pain here. He's told me that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for me an eternal weight of glory. I am in on that deal. And I hope you guys are too. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for saving me from the selfishness of my life and trying to run my own universe. You are better at running the world than I am. You're better at running the world than any of us are. And so we come before you collectively and we say, Jesus, we want you to run our lives. We, we trust you even when we don't understand. And I don't know what's going on in the world with COVID. I don't understand all of my suffering, but I know I have you, God, and you're enough. You're everything that I've been looking for. You're everything that I need. And we confess that together. We need you, Jesus. So come into our lives, be, be more than any of the other things that we're tempted to pursue. We trust you and we love you, God. Amen.